0: Father, we need your help, we need your guidance, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Robert Clinton, we'll forgive him for his last name, Robert Clinton, sorry, was that political? I Sorry. Um, Robert Clinton said this, This one of my favorite quotes. He said, God is concerned with what we are. We want to learn a thousand things because there is so much to learn and do, but he will teach us one thing, perhaps in a thousand ways. It's profound. First of all, it's profound because we are so concerned oftentimes with what we think God wants to use us for. God, what are you going to do for, what are you going to do through me? What do you want to use me for? What what am I going to do in life? And and God says, yeah, I, I can use you. That's fine. But what I'm ultimately concerned about is what is in you. I'm concerned about what I'm doing in you, not just what I'm doing through you. And it's so profound, the idea that that we think God's trying to teach us a thousand lessons, because there's got to be a thousand lessons in here, right? But in reality, God's trying to teach us one lesson a thousand ways. And here's what I think that lesson is that he's trying to teach us. I think that lesson is this. I think the entire process of Christian growth could be summed up in this one reality. Listen that God is graciously removing ourself in exchange for our surrender. God is graciously removing ourself in exchange for our surrender. This is what I think he's doing. Now keep your finger in Isaiah six because that's what we're gonna look at this morning, but just briefly take a right and head over to the book of Mark. I just want you to see something really briefly about the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 14. It says in Mark 14, verse 32. Now, let me set the, the stage just quickly here. Jesus is headed to the cross. In a matter of hours, he will be put up on the cross. He will become the sacrificial lamb for his people. And he knows this. The disciples don't. They're unaware. He just had his meal with them, the Passover feast up in the upper room. Um, and after the Passover feast, they came down into the middle of the night into the place called the Garden of Gethsemane, which was sort of an olive, a, a grove of olive trees. Jesus is trying to mentally prepare himself for uh, what is about to take place. Uh, And so he goes into the garden and he pulls aside, as we'll see, Peter, James, and John. So it says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, John, the inner circle of his disciples. And he began to be greatly distressed. And troubled. So we're seeing Christ in his humanity here. He is, yes, fully God, he's also fully man. And so in his humanity, he is distressing over what he knows is coming, which is not just the crucifixion. Many humans were crucified, not just the crucifixion of men. It was the disconnect that was coming. The wrath of God was about to be poured out on the Son. And it was terrifying to Jesus both in his humanity and in in his divinity. I think it was terrifying for him. Other gospel writers tell us he sweat drops of blood from the severity of the intensity of what he was uh, fearful was coming. He's greatly distressed and troubled. And in verse 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And he says, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour, meaning the hour of the cross, that the cross might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. When he speaks of the cup, he's referring, of course, to the cross, Jesus is crying out in desperation to his father, Abba, Papa, Father, Daddy. He said, please, if there's any other way for me to be able to make atonement, to purchase the bride of Christ without the pummeling of the cross, without the cup of wrath being drunk every drop, if there's any other way, I'll take it. Please, Father, if there's any other way. To which, of course, the response from silence is what? There is no other way. There's no other way. But what I want you to see here is this. I want you to see Jesus' response. See, it's not sinful for him to have a will that is counter to the fathers in this moment. He, he has a will that is going, his human will is going, you know what? I don't want to go to the cross. <laughs> of course he doesn't want to go to the cross. And he's expressing that. Honestly, he's expressing that will. But listen to what he says next. He says, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Now, this is incredible. Don't let this, don't, don't let this go over your head here. This is incredible. How is it possible that Jesus could surrender to the point where he's willing to do something that no human has ever experienced, which is the cross, which is, by the way, more hell than any fallen person will ever experience in all of eternity. Drinking the cup of the wrath of the Father was the most intense thing anyone could ever have done. Only Jesus could do it. He had to drink the poison, right? And so he says, I will give anything to not do this. Yet, he says, my will is not what I'm going to listen to. I'm going to listen to your will. And what could possibly be so satisfying about obeying the will of the Father that he would be willing to go to the cross for it? It's incredible, it's remarkable. What could give Jesus such an ability to surrender his will? And I think the answer is simple. The answer is that the only possible way for Jesus to to, to be willing to surrender to the Father's will instead of his own was if obeying, listen, obeying the Father, surrendering to the Father was more satisfying than avoiding the pain of the cross, The only way he could have done that was if he could see that it would be greater for him, more joyous for him, more fulfilling for him, more sustaining for him to obey the Father than it would be for him to avoid the pain of the cross. Now that tells me something. It tells me that there can be no greater joy than surrendering to the Father. If Jesus was willing to go to the cross because he's so valued, The obedience and surrender to the Father, then we need to talk about that. We need to talk about how we live surrendered lives. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever reached a point in your life where everything falls apart? Okay, I'm not going to share in detail, but I've had moments in my life where I was literally shaking because everything just seemed like it fell apart. Everything just seemed like the wheels came off, rock bottom, and my, my body is just physically responding to how bad this particular moment was. Have you ever had moments like that? Perhaps maybe you, you heard the death of someone you were really close to. Perhaps maybe something, something was uh, said about you or something happened to you that was just was so overwhelming that you literally hit, clunk, rock bottom. Now, have you ever had that experience and then simultaneously, after accepting that that's reality, you feel relief? Have you ever had that? It's the craziest thing. And if you haven't experienced it, that's fine. But it's the craziest thing. The, peace, the most peaceful times I've ever had in my life, listen, the most peaceful times I've ever had in my life were the moments where I completely hit rock bottom and then I accepted it. I went, okay. All right. I give up. I give up. Surrendering is what you were designed to do. Like a fish... That's put back in the water after struggling and flopping and f- floundering around on, the, on, the, on the, the shore. The freest place a fish can be is where? In the water. The freest place you as a human being can be is absolute surrender. When you have said, God, I quit. I give up. And I give over. That's the place of freedom. Keller, Tim Keller says, the problem with self-esteem, whether it is high or low, is that every single day we are in the courtroom. What he means by that is that when, you, when you're living for self and out of self, you're constantly having to measure up to your own expectations, to your own desires, to your own joys. So every day is a courtroom. Every day is a courtroom. Sometimes being a church planter feels like that. Every Sunday is the courtroom. Will, I, will the sermon go off okay? Will anybody come? Does anybody even want to be here? Does this church is it is it moving? Is it growing? We'll see. Every week it's a courtroom. It's exhausting. Some of us live that way. Every day, every moment, every second is a courtroom. It's like, am I enough? Can I measure up? Will I succeed? Will I fail? What is the answer? He says spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning and life without God. What God is trying to teach all of us constantly, continually, is one very simple truth, and that is, it is not your life, it is mine, he says. Surrender, give up, because that is where true peace is. Now, everything I've just said is completely counter to what our culture is telling you, by the way, isn't it? Self-sustaining, self-made The self-life, this is what our culture is telling us we should be living for. The gospel is completely the opposite. Freedom comes in the dying of self. It's the moment that Paul experienced when he had what we call the Damascus Road moment. He's going uh, to kill Christians, and on his way, Christ encounters him. And and, and he he stops him in his tracks, and Paul's terrified. And and Jesus says, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads the picture of course is of an animal kicking back against the nails that are meant to keep it moving forward he's saying saul your whole life has been kicking back against the goads and i'm trying to lovingly graciously sometimes harshly move you to this place of surrender paul had to be broken to the point where he said okay enough of saul give me paul enough of paul give me jesus Enough of me, give me you. I'm sick of running my own life. I want to live your life. I want your reign. Every time somebody says that they are in charge of their own life, I say, how's that going for you? It may be going good now, but it's not going to go good later. All of life is God teaching us, bringing us, corralling us sometimes into a place of surrender. Surrender. Jesus, the perfect prototype of a new humanity, is described here in Philippians 2 as this. Have this mind, Paul says, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He didn't cease to be God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death to a cross here's the reality jesus the perfect human was measured not by his own strength his own self-reliance his own uh self-starting self-made ability he was measured by his willingness to surrender to the father and if you read the gospels and you look for it it's amazing how many times jesus says it not me it's the father It's the Father's leading. It's all about the Father. It's whatever the Father tells me. Just read the book of John. He was all about surrender. So this tells me that as Christians, what God is trying to mature us into is a place of deeper surrender, a place of deeper surrender. And that's what I want to talk about this morning with you guys. So the question, of course, is how do we achieve a place of deeper surrender? And that's why we're going to get into Isaiah chapter 6. Are you guys there? Are you there? I believe the answer to a more surrendered life, which is, parenthetically, is a mature life. Christian maturity is measured, can be measured by our willingness to surrender. Okay, a surrendered life starts with what I want to call an Isaiah 6 moment. An Isaiah chapter 6 moment. The passage we're going to look at, you're probably familiar with it. It's one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. It's one of the most common passages in the Old Testament. But it is, I think, it provides for us a framework for how we become surrendered individuals. Okay? So we're going to look at three steps to total surrender. Three steps to total surrender. You might jot them down and we'll go back through them. Number one, the end of self. First step is the end of self. That's verse one through five. Step two is the place of grace. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it works. Uh, Step three, the posture of surrender. Okay, the end of self, the place of grace, the posture of surrender. So let's just work through this outline. All right, everybody there, Isaiah 6? Okay, here we go, the end of self. Verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Let's stop right there. Let me give you some context, okay, about what's going on here. Isaiah wrote this book. It was actually a collection of his prophecies, uh, which is basically um, poetry, many times, of God speaking to his people. He wrote this book about 700 plus years before Christ came um, onto the earth. And it's interesting that Isaiah notes the exact year. It's one of the few places in uh, the Old Testament where we know an exact date. We know an exact date because King Uzziah was one of the primary kings of Israel. And so it is in the moment in the day that he died that Isaiah's ministry begins as a prophet. Now, why is it significant that Uzziah died? Uzziah was, he was a decent king. Um, He ensured mostly flourishing for the nation of Israel for the most part, which was actually good and actually bad. Because whenever Israel would flourish, they would oftentimes grow in their idolatry. Whenever they would get comfortable, oftentimes their surrender would begin to decrease. Anyone else relate with that? We start to get comfortable, we start to just take things for granted. So Uzziah was really a time of flourishing. Um, he, he flirted a little bit with, uh, with sin to the point where he went into the temple and tried to offer a sacrifice, which was a no-no for a king. And because of that, God struck him with leprosy, which was humbling. So Isaiah had his own story of, of surrender. But it's in this moment that he dies that Isaiah has this vision. And the reason it's significant, first of all, is because the nation is now in a place of uncertainty. Sound familiar? Okay. It's a place of uncertainty. What's going to happen? Uzziah is dead. Who will be the next king? What will be the trajectory for Israel? Now, you and I know, if we're good biblical students, that within a matter of sixty years Israel would be exiled by Assyria, and in a matter of a hundred years Judah would be exiled by Babylon. So things were going to get a little crazy. But God has a message to speak to Israel. Now. Who is it that Isaiah is seeing here and the king Uzziah dies? In the king that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, almost all scholars would agree because the New Testament makes it clear that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay. this is jesus before he came the virgin mary okay this this is christ in heaven very similar to the vision that john the apostle saw when christ was on his throne it's this this scene of the lord god himself yahweh the son jesus christ second person of the trinity in human form but in a complete um, godlike state right so God-like state. He is God. This is what he's seeing. He's seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. John chapter 12, if you want to study it later, actually says that this verse is referring to Jesus Christ. So that's how we know. So he's seeing the pre-incarnate Christ, the Lord himself, and where is he seeing it? It says, particularly, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So this is actually happening in the temple. But Jesus isn't in the temple. He's above the temple. Okay, he's above the temple. The temple hadn't been destroyed yet, by the way. It hadn't been destroyed because Babylon hadn't come and destroyed it yet. Okay, so, so temp, the temple hadn't been destroyed. Uh, this is Solomon's temple. And in this vision, he sees Jesus above it. And this is the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of the robe is really just like the hem, the hem of his garment. The edge of his garment is so overwhelming that it's actually filling the entirety of the temple. It's symbolic for the fact that his glory is filling the temple. Verse two, and above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim is Hebrew for basically flaming one. It's it's an angel, an angelic host, okay? And and literally, they're on fire. Uh, Fire, oftentimes in the Bible, is symbolic for purity, for judgment. So these are servants of the Lord uh, that are perfect, holy, set apart for his use. Each had six wings, it says, which is symbolic for great power, with two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. This a posture of humility. Even in, Is there in the presence of the Lord, they're covering their face and their feet as a sign of, of, of humbleness, a posture of humility. And with two, he flew. And then verse three, and one called to another. So they're speaking to each other praises. One called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or as uh, Eugene Peterson puts it, the God of angel armies, okay? The Lord of, they're crying out to one another. In the midst of God's glory, by the way, you can't help but declare it. So they're praising God to each other because they're so smitten and overwhelmed by the scene of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, on his throne with all glory. So these angelic hosts that could probably annihilate the whole earth, with a couple words, are in awe of the otherness, that's what holy means, the otherness of God, that he's in his own category. You notice that they repeat the word holy three times. It's the only place in the Old Testament where Hebrew language is repeated, one word is repeated three times. In our language, what do we do? We put an exclamation point. In the Hebrew language, they repeat the word for emphasis. The only place in the Old Testament where a word is emphasized three times. So he's not just holy, which is set apart, other than, different, sanctified, unmatched. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And don't think of one plus one plus one. Think of eternity times eternity times eternity. Infinity times infinity times infinity. Perfection times perfection times perfection. The angelic hosts are declaring there is no one like this, Lord. Nobody like this, Lord. He is unmatched, unmatched. Equaled, unrivaled. That's what his holiness is. So what is Isaiah experiencing in this moment? First of all, he's experiencing God's immense otherness. I don't know how else to put it. That's what it is. God's immense otherness. That he is creator and everything else in creation must bow to him. Secondly, he's experiencing God's ultimate rule as ultimate reality. So what? Isaiah is seeing is actually what we would see if we could see the unseen realm. It feels like people are in charge, doesn't it? feels like governments. It feels like the prince of the power of the air, Satan, is sort of doing his thing. But if we could see all things, like Isaiah is in this moment, the the curtain is being peeled, we would realize that God's sovereignty, his holiness, his glory, his power is everywhere. It is filling all things. All things know to bow down to God, except for the things that have been lied to. The things that refuse to believe that he is above all things. So he's seeing God's ultimate rule as ultimate reality. This is, uh, as I prayed in the beginning, this is what Jesus was praying when he said, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He's praying this scene into reality, into this created realm. He's saying, as it is in heaven, when everything is bowing to you as it should be, may it be on earth. So what makes us Christians is that we are kingdom people, meaning we bow to Christ as all things do in heaven and as all things will do on earth. Creation already gets it, but we've been lied to, okay? When Jesus comes into Jerusalem and people are crying, Hosanna, and the scribes go, rebuke your disciples, and Jesus go, if they don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. Why? Because all creation understands the supremacy and holiness of Christ. All creation already understands that all glory belongs to him. It's only us fallen, sinful human beings that have forgotten that or chosen to deny that. Isaiah not only sees the holiness the otherness of Christ, he also sees the fallenness of himself, and this is key to coming to the end of yourself. Verse 5, Isaiah said, and listen to these words, don't let let them pass you by, woe is me, for I am, I like this translation better, I am ruined. The ESV translates it lost, that's fine, but I don't think it carries the same power that it's supposed to. He says, I'm finished. I'm dead. I'm ruined. So Isaiah's immediate response as he beholds the glory and the holiness and the severity and the power of Christ is to say, I'm done. I'm dead. I'm finished. It's a pretty common posture of anyone that beholds the glory of the Lord, isn't it? John, the apostle, flat on his face. <laughs> I mean it's just it's just a common reality. Because what is Isaiah thinking in this moment? He's thinking there's no possible way that I can possibly be in the presence of this being. He's too much for me. And I as he says here, I am a man of unclean lips. So, in contrast to the holiness of God, he immediately sees his own sinfulness. Now, why does he say lips? He says, I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. He, see, he says his lips because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Isaiah, I can imagine in this moment where he's hoping he wore his brown pants, if you know what I mean, he is literally thinking all of the things that he has blasphemously said, all of the times that he's taken lightly the glory of God. All the times he has has sneered at the surrender to Yahweh. And now, as he's recalling all that, he looks at the holiness of the Lord. He says, I'm ruined. I'm done. I'm done. There is no way. Part of me wonders if he thought this was judgment day. If he thought he had died and now stood before the throne to be judged. He sees the reality of his utter inadequacy. He remembers his complete rebellion, his blatant blasphemy towards God. He knows he doesn't stand a chance. Here's my point. Listen, there is no surrender or salvation without total ruin and total resignation of self. This moment that Isaiah is experiencing is a prerequisite for saving faith. It's a prerequisite. I'm not saying you have to have a vision. I'm saying the coming to the end of yourself is the place that salvation comes. I like to call it the crisis moment. The crisis moment. It's the moment where you realize, I don't want to live for me anymore. I'm ruined. I'm done with me. I'm done with me. I want Him. I want Him. That is the moment where we are willing and ready to give God everything. For me, it was weeping in a bathroom at a Christian camp when I was 17 years old, because I was so angry at myself for being myself. So angry for everything I'd ever done and said. I was so stupid. Everything I said out of my mouth got me in trouble. I was so unsatisfied, unfulfilled, disillusioned with who I was and who I was becoming and what I could do and all of my faults and I literally just, I hated myself. But I realized that the answer wasn't to hate myself, the realize was to surrender. I realized the answer was to surrender myself. and To go, God, will you take this and make it into something that can be used for you? That's what surrender is. Andrew Murray says, by the way, wrote an amazing book on surrender. He said, just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds you abased and empty, his glory and power flow in. Here's the problem. The problem is that many of you have been taught a false gospel. The False gospel, Christian Smith calls it the moralistic therapeutic deism. This is Western Christianity in many ways. The idea is is that morals are important. God exists, but he exists to be your therapist, not to be your Lord. So what do you do to get saved? You invite him into your life. Have you invited the Lord into your life? Is that salvation? Lord, will you come be part of my junk drawer, eclectic, uh, eclectic sort of group of things that I have in my life? Will you come help me when I feel sad? Will you come be my therapist? Will you listen to me when I'm depressed? Will you give me some purpose in my life? Give me something to be excited about? That is not the place of salvation. That is a false gospel. The place of salvation is a place of ruin. It's a place where we come to the end of ourselves completely and we say, Jesus, I choose you and you alone. Don't believe me? Okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who certainly Went through some hard things. Said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Does that sound like moralistic, therapeutic deism to you? He gets it from this. Jesus said in Luke 14, now great crowds accompanied him. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life... What is that? That is the end of self. Jesus is saying, if you want to come to me, you have to have come to the place of the end of self. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, meaning whoever doesn't surrender like I did and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus can't possibly mean this, right? I mean, isn't salvation just sort of adding him to our life? Or is salvation actually coming to the end of oneself and saying, you are the Lord. You are the King. I surrender all rights to you. I sign the deed to you. I give you full rights to my life. Take it. Do what you want to do with it. That was how Jesus lived, and that's what he called his disciples to do. He goes on in John fifteen twelve. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Oh, that's so sweet. That's so great. He says, by the way, you're my friends if you do what I tell you. (laughs) Oh, so you don't want to just be my buddy? You want to be my Lord. Now, Don't get me wrong. He sees you as friend, but he is your king. He is your king. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Speaking to the Pharisees the crowds, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And don't do what I tell you. <laughs> That's the sign of a disciple is that they're in surrender. They're obeying Christ as Lord. Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I have died to the self, but Christ who lives in me and I and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, no, Paul's dead. I died. The self has been crucified with Christ and now I'm alive in Christ because my self has died. This is the call. Of surrender. This is the call of surrender. Let the peace, Colossians 3 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You want the peace of Christ? It comes with his rule. You can't get the peace of Christ without the rule of Christ. Does that make sense? Let the peace, it doesn't say, let the peace of Christ live in your hearts. It doesn't say, let the, the peace of Christ coexist in your hearts. It doesn't say let the peace of Christ hang out in your hearts. It says, let the peace of Christ what? Come on, guys, let the peace of Christ what? Rule in your hearts. It's it's an absolute surrender to his rule. The peace comes, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Oswald Chambers, the reason some of us are such poor specimens of Christianity is because we have no Almighty Christ. We have Christian attributes and experiences, but there is no abandonment to Jesus Christ. We've made it all about the feelings. We made it all about what we get and not about the surrender. One more, Andrew Murray, just as a servant knows that he must first obey his master in all things, so the surrender to an implicit and unquestionable obedience must become the essential characteristic of our lives. Defines us as Christians is who our king is, not how we feel, who our king is, who we have surrendered our life to. Okay, now some of you are squirming right now. Because you're going, but I don't feel like I'm fully surrendered. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Sam, why are you putting bondage on me? Okay, here's the reality of the gospel. The good news is only good news once you believe the bad news. The only reason that that, that Isaiah understood his need for salvation was because he understood his own wretchedness. He understood with clarity how wretched he was before a holy and righteous God. And the the good news becomes so much sweeter. Take a look at verse 6. So in this moment where Isaiah is completely ruined, one of the seraphim, one of the flaming ones, flew to me and having in his hand a burning coal, remember fire symbolizes purity, that he had taken with tongs. Now how hot does something have to be for a flaming person to pick it up with tongs? Okay, just think about that. Where does he pick it up from? Where does he pick it? Come on, let's be a little more Pentecostal this morning. Where does he pick it up from? The altar. altar. Okay, this is most, like, remember, they're in the temple, okay? This isn't just some random place. They're in the temple. And what was the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple was largely to make atonement. It was a place where God would meet with his people, and the way they would meet with his people was atonement would be made. Atonement is payment for sins, because sin ultimately leads to death. Without death, there is no remission for sins. Without the removal of sin, a holy God cannot be with an unholy man. So the purpose of the temple was to create a clean space, before Christ, to create a clean space that God and man could meet. In the temple, Isaiah sees his fallenness, and immediately one of the flaming ones goes over and picks up a coal from the altar. What was the altar? It was where atonement was made. It was where the sacrifice had been given. He brings it over, and he touches what? What does he touch? His lips. Why was his lips? Because that was where he had confessed that he was broken. That was where the, that was the, the symbol, the place of his sinfulness. So the atonement is applied to the place of his sinfulness. And then listen to the words. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Of course, the coal is what? The coal is Jesus. Interestingly, in this picture, we're seeing him before Jesus, and Jesus himself would ultimately be the coal that would atone for him. But make no mistake, okay? God is not just choosing to forget the sin of Isaiah because then he wouldn't be just. The coal that was placed on his lips was from a sacrifice, meaning the, pe- the sin was paid for, the penalty was paid. So he's atoning for Isaiah's sin. He's cleansing Isaiah's sin. He's giving newness to Isaiah. And can I just, can I just point something out? Really quickly, I'm not. I don't have an extra grind on this, but it, it, Isaiah does absolutely nothing to merit this. I it could really blow your minds. All the Calvinists in the room will be happy about this. Okay, he didn't even ask for it. He just cried out that he was wretched, and God, of His own grace, sends His servant to pick up the coal and cleanse him. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying we don't have a part to play in salvation. I'm saying God gets all the glory because God is the initiator of saving wretched people such as us. God pursued me. He pursued me. He allowed me graciously to see my brokenness, and then he came in and paid my sin debt. But here's my main point. His severity brings an end to self. That's true. We saw that. But listen, listen. His goodness is the genesis of our surrender, Okay, let me say that again. His severity brings us to the end of ourselves, but his goodness is the genesis, that just means beginning, of our surrender. If you want to surrender, it comes by believing his goodness, not his severity. Severity is how we see our need for atonement. His goodness is how we see our longing for surrender. There's a difference. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It was the goodness of God that led Isaiah to a place of conformity. I love this Tim Keller quote. He says, Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? The atheist might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They are a good person and they hope that eventually they will get a verdict that confirms that they are a good person. Performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhist too, performance leads to the verdict. If you are a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this, means, all this means that every day you are in, again, the courtroom, every day you are on trial. That is the problem, but Paul is saying that Christianity, the verdict leads to the performance. Isaiah was given accredited righteousness before he said, send me, I'll go. Before he wrote a book, before he prophesied, before he did a single thing, the atonement came first, and the atonement was what won him over to a place of surrender. Okay, I'm going to nerd out on you, but think of Lord of the Rings in the first movie when, you guys picturing it? Okay, they're in Bilbo's house, he still has the ring, and Gandalf, who towers above him, and is being very friendly at this moment to Bilbo. He says, Bilbo, you, you need to leave the ring behind. Bilbo's instantly feeling this conflict. Why is he feeling the conflict? Because I, I think Tolkien was trying to allude to the idea of self. The idea of dying to self and choosing to live for something else. Okay, so I think that was the idea. Bilbo's feeling this inner conflict, this inner turmoil. I don't want to give the ring up. I don't want to give it up. So what does he do? He, he kind of pretends like he got rid of it. He didn't. A few minutes go by. Bilbo's about ready to leave and Gandalf says, "Hey, the ring is still in your pocket. You still haven't died to self. It's still there. Are you going to let go of it?" And Frodo goes, "You want it for yourself, right?" And he freaks out on him. He's like, "You just want it cuz you blah blah blah." Is everybody awake now? Um, "You want it for yourself?" And and instantly, Gandalf has to change. He gets really tall, he gets really big, his voice gets really deep, and he goes, do not think I'm a conjurer of cheap tricks. And Frodo's kind of like, (laughs) whoop. Like, oh, you're really big. You're really powerful. You're really strong. But Frodo doesn't, or Bilbo doesn't give up the ring until what? Until Gandalf reminds him that he's his friend as well. He says, I don't I don't want it for myself. I'm worried about you. And he immediately just crumples into Gandalf's arms, right? If you haven't seen the movie, you're like, what are you talking about? The point is is that the surrender happens when we understand both the severity and the power and the supremacy and the sovereignty of God, but also when we understand the goodness and the love and the compassion of God simultaneously. That is when we crumple and fall into the arms of Christ, said, you can have all of me because you're not only powerful, you're good. You're not only good, but you're powerful. He's ready to assume responsibility for a completely surrendered life, Andrew Murray says. I love what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot wrote. She said, can we give up all for the love of God when the surrender of ourselves seems too much to ask It is first of all because our thoughts about God himself are paltry. We have not really seen him. We have hardly tested him at all and learned how good he is. In our blindness, we approach him with suspicious reserve. We ask how much of our fun he intends to spoil, how much he will demand from us, how high is the price we must pay before he is satisfied if we had the least notion of his loving kindness and tender mercy, his fatherly care for his poor children, his generosity, his beautiful plans for us, if we knew how patiently he awaits for our turning to him, how gently he means to lead us to green pastures and still waters, how carefully he is preparing a place for us, how ceaselessly he is ordering and ordaining and engineering his master plan for our good, if we had any inkling of all this, Could we be reluctant to let go of our smashed dandelions or whatever we clutch so fiercely in our sweaty little hands? If with courage and joy we pour ourselves out for him and for others, for his sake, it is not possible to lose in any final sense. Anything worth keeping, we will lose ourselves and our selfishness. We will gain everything worth having. Isn't that beautiful? And this is a woman who lost husband after husband In fact, it was her husband himself who said, any man who, I'm going to mess it up, you're not a fool for giving what you're going to lose anyways, essentially, which he would, of course, lose his life after that. It is the goodness of God that leads us to surrender. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. All to Jesus, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. I surrender all. should have done that song this morning. That would have been great. Thirdly, Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, we see the posture of surrender. The posture of surrender. Take a look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Some Trinitarian language there. Then I said, I love this. Isaiah's like, me. <laughs> I'm like, here I am. Send me. I'll go. Whatever it is that you want. I mean, Isaiah didn't even get a job description. The job the job description actually comes after, and I think it's a pretty bad one. You're gonna go prophesy, they're not gonna listen to you. Their heart's gonna be hard. But regardless, I love this, after he sees the severity of God, he sees his own ruin, he sees the grace and favor and forgiveness of God, he's atoned for, and immediately what happens? I will go. All of my life is now yours. I surrender it. All of it. Whatever you want me to do. Without hesitation, he immediately signs up to take part in God's will and God's work. Tozer said, the man or woman who is holy or joyously surrendered to Christ can't make a wrong choice. Any choice will be the right one. <laughs> I love that. Spurgeon similarly said, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. What's happening in this moment is that Isaiah has is become conformed to the will of God. And so whatever God wants, he wants. You know, a lot of people, how do I obey God? I just don't want to obey God. It's because you haven't surrendered to him. You haven't seen his goodness. When you know him and you love him and you trust him, his will is your will. That's the beauty sanctification that's what we grow into the fully surrendered life finds its deepest satisfaction in the participation of god's plan and will that's why christians want to serve jesus (laughs) because we're united with his mission with his calling that's why we planted a church we want to see people come to christ we want to see people mature and grow in jesus because that's what jesus wants We're just in step, in line with his desire, his will. Isaiah's motivation, now listen to this, Isaiah's motivation in going, though, was not for the people, It wasn't for himself, it wasn't to try to win favor, he has no favor to win, he's already forgiven. His reason for going was only because he found such instant delight in being surrendered to the will of God. And can I just say, if you're doing any ministry, and by ministry, I include reaching out to a friend, raising a child, loving a spouse, whatever that is, if you're doing ministry for any other reason than this, you'll burn out. If you're loving your kids because you want your kids to love you, you'll fail. If you're loving your spouse because you want her to love you back, if you're reaching out to somebody with the gospel because you want them to be saved, now that's, that's a good thing to want. But ultimately what drives us as christians is that we want to be surrendered to his will we want it because that's what he wants and he's our reward he is the reason that we do what we do this is what jesus was getting at when he said in john four thirty one. meanwhile the disciples were urging him saying rabbi eat food you're starving aren't you hungry you've been ministering and ministering and he says but he said to them i have food that you do not know about what was the food My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. The key to faithfulness is that you do it for him. Some of you in here are married to unbelieving spouses. Some of you are raising kids that are hard, tricky. Some of you are in situations at work that you hate. Your boss is a jerk. Some of you are called to be faithful. How do you be faithful? It certainly can't be for the outcome, It certainly can't be for the person. That's not enough. You're faithful because it is your food to serve him, because it's rewarding to be faithful to him, and only that is enough. Jackie Hill Perry, she said, you will give God anything if you believe God is everything. Isn't that good? You will give God anything if you believe God is everything. So let's get into some nuts and bolts here, okay? Some nuts and bolts. How do I know what my area of surrender is? that might be a question you're asking right now. Okay, Uh, as Christians, we all have areas that God is still trying to lead us into surrender. I guarantee you may may not know what they are. So the question is, how do we know what those areas are? Uh, Remember, the flaming one came and put the coal on a particular place. It was Isaiah's lips. So what is that place for you? What is that place of surrender? For some of you, it may be surrendering your ambitions. That doesn't mean that you can't ever do anything you want to do. That doesn't mean God's saying, he's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not saying, well, if you want to be that, then you have to not be that. Okay? That's not the point. But but there is a difference between not doing something and surrendering something. For some of you in here right now, there is an ambition of yours that you want to do, and that's fine, but have you surrendered it? Well, how do I know if I've surrendered it? Well, what happens when someone tells you maybe you shouldn't do that? How do you react I told a guy one time, he spent his entire life trying to be a front man for a band. I told him he couldn't sing. That did not go well. You want to talk about something that hadn't been surrendered? His wife went mama bear, right? I mean, it was crazy. So I'll never do that again. But the point was, is that sometimes God has a way of sticking his finger on that thing that you have not surrendered. If you want to be this or you want to be that and someone says, hey, maybe you shouldn't be that, they could be wrong. But if you freak out on them, you might want to look at that, okay? You know how a doctor tells if you've got broken ribs or bones or anything? He pokes at you. Oh, that's it. Oh, that's it right there. Oh, yeah, that's it right there, okay? That's the spot, okay? What do you squirm at? What are the areas you don't want anybody poking around in that part? I don't touch that part of my life. Don't bring that up. I don't want to go there. That's the area. That's the area God wants to get at. He's not interested in fixing you externally. He's not interested in topical cream. He wants to fix you at the deepest level. He wants you surrendered wholly because that's where you'll be the happiest, the most free. For some of you in here, it's a present sin. For some of you in here, it's a constant sin that you're struggling with and you haven't yet been honest with yourself about that or the Lord or whoever. For some of you in here, it's surrendering a past regret and a failure. You just hold on to it. God will never forgive me for that. It's just too bad. That's the thing. He wants you to surrender it. He wants you to bring it to him. For some of you, it's surrendering your authority and your control. You want to control everything. You want everything to go your way. God is gracious and loving enough oftentimes to not give us our way. (laughs) Because he knows that sometimes our way is going to make us miserable. For some of us in here, it is surrendering our limitations and weaknesses. We were praying before church, and it was just the list went on and on of people that literally can't even get out of bed. People that are just dealing with severe chronic pain and suffering and struggle and health conditions. And, and you look at that and you go, man, what in the world? God is teaching those people to surrender in their limitations. To go, I may you know, some people have to go, I may never walk again. I may never walk again. There's a limitation, a weakness there. God's asking you to to surrender that, to say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to never walk again if that's what you have for me. Not my will, but your will. None of us can say we had a harder cross to bear than Christ. Nobody can say that. And Jesus chose to set aside his will and say, not my will, but your will, because obeying you, God, is better than the cross, better than avoiding the cross. Some of you might be asking, okay, where do I start? Where does surrender begin? Okay, now, if you're a Christian, you don't need another Isaiah 6 moment, hopefully, okay? If you're a Christian, you don't need another, Jesus, he's trying to wash his disciples' feet, and Peter's like, I'm washing my feet. And Jesus is like, okay, well, you got nothing to do with me then oh, I was just kidding, I was just kidding. Wash my whole body, give me a shower, right? Give me a bath. And Jesus is like, I don't need to give you a bath. I already washed, you're already cleansed, right? I just need to wash your feet. So uh, it's not like you need to go out and get saved again, unless you aren't. It's not like you need to go out and get baptized again. I'm saying, if you had that moment of crisis where you said, Lord, I'm dead to self, I believe in you, I've received your atonement, don't forget that. Keep coming back to that. Keep reminding yourself daily of your Isaiah 6 moment. Never forget. Tim Keller said, all I can tell you is that we have to relive the gospel every time we pray. We have to relive it every time we go to church. We have to relive the gospel on the spot and ask ourselves what we are doing in the courtroom. We should not be there. The court is adjourned. So you just keep reminding yourself of the gospel. You keep reminding yourself of where you were before Christ and where Christ has brought you now. You keep reminding yourself of the fact that he has touched you with the coal. You have been atoned for. You are a new creation. And you believe the gospel. And believing the gospel is how we continue to walk and surrender. If you're not surrendering something to God, it's because you don't believe he's good. Or you don't believe he's capable. It's one of those two things. Either he's not good or he's not capable. And both of those are lies. Both of those are failures to believe the gospel. Both of them. God has a gracious way of corralling us, doesn't he? You ever watch cows get corralled into the little squeeze thing? I don't know what it's called. Squeeze chute? I don't know. They don't really know what's going on. They're just kind of following the flow. They think they're avoiding something hard, but in fact they're getting corralled God has a gracious way of corralling. He's not crawling us to pick on us. He's corralling us because he loves us. He's corralling us because he loves us enough to deal with our stuff, okay? But let me just give you a hint. Part of spiritual maturity is not making God have to corral you all the time. Part of spiritual maturity is like Christ laying down your own rights before he has to corral you. God will not let you, as a believer, he's not gonna let you ruin yourself he, he graciously allows the severity of sin at times to come in. But the mature believer goes, God, I want to surrender before the corralling. I just want to give it over now. Not because it's a spanking. It's not a spanking. There's no spankings left. There is no punishment. There's no, for, no condemnation for those in Christ. It's not a spanking. It's a correction. God wants you to be free. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be at peace. And that comes in surrender. He wants you to be a fish in the water, the water of His will, His love, His goodness, His plan, not your own desire. Amen? And one last thing, I'll be done. This is something we have to practice, okay? So we're in a series called Access Points. It's a spiritual discipline. These are are practical ways that we as Christians grow and mature. And I'm just going to tell you, surrendering is a practice. I want you to think of it as a practice. I don't want you to think of it as something you want and done. Up, oh, surrendered, done. No, you're going to get up tomorrow. You're going to have to surrender again. Okay? And then again, and then again, and then again, and then again. It's just part of the Christian walk is learning to surrender. But let me encourage you in something. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, talking about Jesus, it says, Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Have you ever read that verse before? Does that seem weird to you? He's Jesus. What do you mean he had to learn obedience? Isn't he perfect? Uh, but you're assuming obedience refers to him not sinning. What he's learning is he's learning how to live a surrendered life. He's learning how to tune into God's will. I think that's what he spent 30 years doing before the ministry. He spent 30 years learning how to surrender to prepare him for the cross. And so, what that tells you, what it tells me, is that we are learning. We're learning how to be surrenderers. We're learning how to let God into the unsurrendered spaces in our lives because he's good, because he loves us. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? Father, thank you that you are good, that your love endures forever. Man, God, we are just a room full of jacked up people, but Lord, you have called us your own. You've given us your perfect life, you've set your spirit within us, and you are graciously leading us. You're graciously leading us to a place where we can be more surrendered to you. And God, I thank you that we are not defined by our struggles, we're defined by the gospel. I pray, Lord, that we can act like who we are. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we can be like you, full surrender. Whatever those areas are, each of us in here know, I pray, we wouldn't feel the condemnation of that. We would feel the desire to trust you with that. That as you poke and prod, God, that we would see you as a good physician, able to work out this stuff in us.